Blog Talk Radio. And I Thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by our sponsors, Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host, Katie Jackson. And today we are on our last part of our three series part uh, shows that we've done with Dr. Goodman. And we are talking about um, today, we are going to be talking about um, OCD. We're going to be talking about a psychosis. And we are going to be talking about apathy. Um, the last shows we've talked about anxiety. We've talked. We've talked about depression. These are all archived shows and are available in iTunes and Blog Talk. Um, we will be putting the all these shows up, all of them together that we have done. Uh, these shows have been. Our numbers have actually gone incredibly high on these shows, um, larger numbers than we're used to seeing, uh, which shows that these. Um, these different symptoms, these neuropsychiatric symptoms in Huntington's disease is very challenging for our families, and we have a hard time with physicians understanding them. So these guidelines that Dr. Goodman is talking about are so important to our families, and that is showing just with these show numbers alone. So um, we are so thankful for Dr. Goodman to come in and talk to us about these new guidelines, um, as well as these symptoms in HD. And uh, so we are going to wrap up the show, this series today, and I will uh, bring on Dr. Goodman, and we will start talking about apathy. Okay. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me on and uh, for the, this series of uh, programs. And I also suggest that you go to the website, HDDW's website, where all of where where seven different I mean seven different uh, symptoms complications of Huntington's have the guidelines uh, listed, so you can read if you're a learner in that way uh, other than than listening. Uh, everybody learns differently. Uh, you can pull them up and you can uh, also print them out. Uh, the guidelines, just a, a, a moment, and if you haven't heard the presentations earlier, the guidelines were developed by a large group of uh, HD experts, uh, international ones who work in the European network of Huntington's and and the uh, Huntington Study Group of Physicians. Uh, and the guidelines were developed by this large group, about 80 HD experts, agreeing that the recommendation was one that they think that doctors should know about. Uh, so uh, very carefully developed over uh, several years of, of time. Uh, it's important to know also that guidelines are meant to be tools. Uh, they're not rigid recipes that uh, a person should definitely follow uh, because each person is different. Um, 
each person is unique, and that is, of course, a primary consideration. That guidelines are useful, but they're not the end all of how things, what other symptoms a person may have, uh, and what stage of disease they're at will affect uh, how you treat that symptom. So if, if, if uh, there's anxiety uh, at one stage of disease, you may treat it differently in a different stage of disease, or you will treat mm-hmm. it differently if there are a multitude of symptoms present. So it's not so simple as just the, uh, uh, it, it's not so simple uh, as uh, following something rigidly that's in, in a guideline. Uh, and of course, sure. we know that symptoms, uh, uh, another take home point is that the, in general, each of these symptoms are uh, treated similarly in the general population. So the guidelines for treating anxiety in the general population are pretty much the same as those for treating anxiety in Huntington's. Same way with psychosis, same way with sleep disorders. Uh, So it's not uh, that it's so different uh, that your doctor should not be aware of how to treat these things. What makes it more complicated is being able to treat, recognize the different symptoms and try to treat them with the least number of drugs. If you have a drug that can treat more than one symptom, then that's the one that should be chosen usually. Okay, that's kind of the summary going into it. And you said that we're going to be talking about, uh, what did you say first, psychosis, apathy? Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to go, I can't remember what you said, but I'm going to go first to uh, um, apathy, I think that's what you said. Perfect. Yep. yep. Apathy is uh, a lack of emotional response. Um, it can occur really at any time in the disease. It can occur before motor onset, um, milder forms of it, and it increases in severity with stage of disease. This is thought to be a symptom that's related to cognitive decline. Uh, They seem to map or go along together. Uh, So apathy is when uh, someone is not interested in doing things that they used to do, uh, that they don't spontaneously start things, that they're not interested either emotionally or physically in doing things that, uh, that used to get that they used to do uh, it's important uh, now there's apathy that occurs with in other situations there's apathy that occurs with depression when you also mm-hmm. when a person also does not uh, take pleasure in doing things that they used to take pleasure in uh, or don't want to do those things just kind of uh, uh, become more reclusive or go into themselves. Uh, telling ap- one of the astute questions from a listener earlier in the process was, earlier in the presentations was, well, how can you tell apathy from depression? And that's a very good question yeah. because you can't, it's very hard to tell it. And do, do doctors have trouble being able to tell the difference? Yes, yes, we do. Um, in general, uh, you differentiate or you can, you can uh, there is, a, uh, with apathy of depression, there's, there's also sadness. And 
there can be suicidal thoughts uh, that go along with uh, with depression. Apathy itself, there's not usually sadness. There's a lack of motivation for mm. doing either cognitive or motor things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there's not sadness associated with it usually. Sadness or suicidal thoughts uh, are more related to the apathy of depression. Now, can you have both present in the same individual? Of course. And so is, sure, it, yeah. is it possible to uh, differentiate completely? Probably not. Uh, mm-hmm. I, not very easily anyway in a non-research kind of situation. Uh, one of the things that I learned from Jimmy Pollard is, and that went into also these guidelines, is that you need to be sure that you're not calling apathy something that's just a slow response from the individual. Uh, right. It, it takes longer for the person to respond verbally to a request even though they would respond if they were given the time to do it. Um, or if it, it, it's not apathy if you can't perform something that you used to be able to perform. And as an example, uh, uh, a patient of mine who loved golf uh, stopped playing golf because it was difficult for him physically, but he still loved to mm-hmm. watch it on TV. So that was not apathy. He still loved it, wanted to participate, but couldn't at the same level, so stopped playing. Uh, So he withdrew from that activity, but that wasn't apathy. It was because he couldn't do it in the manner that he wanted to do it before. So that we need to differentiate that from apathy and give people more time or more opportunity to uh, answer questions, uh, to participate, uh, to respond more slowly or to participate in a different way. For instance, watching golf on TV as opposed to playing for it, playing it. Um, another important thing to consider when there is apathy is that a lot of the drugs that we give for other symptoms in, uh, in, in Huntington's can cause apathy too. Mm-hmm. Apathy is one of the side effects with antidepressants sometimes. Uh, with excuse me, with antipsychotics, uh, with mood stabilizers, those usual drugs that we use uh, for other symptoms in Huntington's. Uh, and if those other drugs aren't necessary, uh, aren't absolutely necessary, a trial of reducing a dosage uh, or changing a drug may be useful, and you may find out that it's it's really not so much apathy, but a side effect of the medicine. And, of course, it's important to treat depression because there's an apathy of depression, too. Uh, The drug recommendations are really pretty simple. Uh, Let me go back. Uh, The behavior recommendations, so before you think about a drug, uh, if if the person has apathy of Huntington's, due to Huntington's, if if we can provide prompts, or instead of having um, the person come up with the idea of participating in something, instead, 
encourage them to participate in something. Uh, to do something that they used to like to do, they may not spontaneously do it, but if you prompt them and encourage them, uh, then they may be able to participate more. So encouraging and providing prompts for either social or physical activities for each individual is, is important. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most important, I think, for be, for involving and bringing people into uh, more activities, encouragement and prompting. Uh, provide the chance, encourage them to participate uh, because they may not spontaneously bring it up by themselves. The important thing, I believe, is to treat make sure you treat with an antidepressant if you're not sure whether it's apathy of HD or apathy of depression. So if you can't tell or you're not sure, and in many cases you aren't, uh, then right. the, a trial of an antidepressant is wise. Now, if there is no change in, in, in apathy, uh, after an antidepressant, it doesn't have to be continued. If a drug is not successful in treating a symptom, then that drug should be withdrawn. You know, it's not helping and, and who knows, maybe, maybe causing a side effect. But giving it, give it, giving it a trial uh, is always, I think, a good idea. Uh, yeah, and Dr. Goodman, if they're already on a, um, an antidepressant, uh, would you would like there would there be a suggestion of maybe trying a different one or upping the dose or would a doctor what would what would you do as an expert looking at that if they're already on one? Well, I would I would change to a different antidepressant, uh, and I've done that with my patients and had some success. Uh, not always, uh, you know, switching from one SSRI to antidepressant to another has been helpful. Um, just as when you're treating depression, you can, when you switch from one that isn't working very well to another one, you may, it, you'll have a benefit, and it's not clear why that's happening, but it clinically does happen. It does happen in some people that you'll respond to mm-hmm. uh, you. You won't respond to one, but will respond to another. So it's a little bit like trial and error. Uh, maybe someday it will be sure. better than that. Uh, but mm. yes, trying to switch, uh, increasing a dosage, uh, because what you're really doing is treating the depression. Right. When you're doing a trial, you're, that's what you're attempting to, to treat. So if a person is already on an antidepressant, then increasing that dosage is uh, uh, one thing you can do, or you can you can also, um, uh, particularly if the depression has been well treated. Instead, I would switch to a different uh, antidepressant, and one can consider switching to anti an antidepressant that is more energizing, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, okay. bupropion, and I have found that successful. Uh, to, to be useful in a couple of patients. Um, okay. In spite of, the, you know, there has been a clinical trial with using bupropion to see whether or not that, that improved apathy. And the clinical trial suggested that it did not. Uh, 
uh, when you compared it to the placebo mm-hmm. response. But the placebo okay. response was quite high also. So mm-hmm. everybody, or, I mean, both placebo and active drug-treated individuals in that clinical trial, their apathy improved. Uh, apathy is something that doesn't usually improve. Uh, so, but both both groups, their measurements of apathy improved a fair amount, a surprising mm-hmm. amount That's would be for the researchers. Yeah. Um, hmm. So, you know, what is that? Is that a placebo effect, uh, or is it an interaction effect? And and this was discussed in that paper by the authors that when you have people, and it's not limited to the bupropion trial, but it also happened in the pridopidine trial or the heart and uh, the subsequent pride HD, though it did not improve motor symptoms, uh, the groups both improved. And in fact, the placebo group improved more, a little more. So there was a response to being in the clinical trial. Right. Um, Yeah. and 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 we kind of we've kind of known that uh, people in clinical trials tend to do better than people not in them, uh, for you know sure. un- unknown reasons, but they do. Uh, and the authors of the bupropion study suggested that part of it is an interaction effect. So when an individual with Huntington's is seen frequently by a caring provider who's really looking at their symptoms and measuring them and be interested in them, showing that they care, then symptoms improve, whether it is a motor symptom or whether it is a, uh, whether it is apathy. Things tend to get yeah. better when there's more interaction with a research group or, or probably indeed with, with, you know, your regular clinical visits. You are, you have you're you're being engaged by a person knowledgeable with uh, knowledgeable about Huntington's who wants to help you, who wants to, mm-hmm. and it really cares about you, uh, and that makes people feel better. And in fact, people are better. There's a recent. Yeah. <laughs> I was just I read a study today that you know what is the placebo effect? You know people don't understand what the placebo effect is. Recently, there have been very recently reported uh, that there are actually changes in brain chemistry that can be measured. Uh, oh wow! When people are on, even they're given a sugar pill, and they know mm-hmm. they're given a sugar pill, but they're they, but they they still get better from what whatever symptom mm-hmm. it is, um, emotional symptom usually. And you can also see sure. that there is a change in certain areas of the brain of, and, and certain uh, uh, molecules that you can identify that uh, seem to be involved in this response. And this is a very new, this, these are very new findings, uh, maybe a better mm-hmm. understanding of what placebo response is, but that goes beyond, you know, the discussion here. But, but the placebo effect is real and it's an interactive effect interaction effect by that when the person with Huntington's has a good and continuing and frequent relationship with a care provider, a doctor or someone running the clinical trial, the clinical trial coordinator, uh, individuals with Huntington's on average do better. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So that's about the, the uh, I got into discussing placebo and uh, uh, Wellbutrin or Bupropion well, uh, trial. Uh, but yeah, and I think that's that was a negative so trial. Uh, it, mm. However, I think that there are, again, the, you know, the, the guidelines suggest that you still can try a drug like Wellbutrin or Bupropion because in some people it seems to be helpful. So it doesn't yeah. mean you shouldn't I kn- try it. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. I know that I've heard from many, uh, many different families that when their loved ones are, you know, they're, they're no longer working and they're doing this, that they, that they start to experience apathy and depression and these things. And a lot of the family members have told me that they feel like their loved ones lost like purpose, right? That they no longer work. They feel like they don't have a purpose. And a lot of times getting involved in clinical trials and groups and different things like this have helped them feel like right. I have purpose. I, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing something to right. help. Exactly. Um, Engaging and, them, yeah. prompting yeah. them, encouraging them yeah. to do things socially or physically is the behavioral recommendation. Sure. So exactly, whether it's a, in being in a clinical trial or, or uh, volunteering, doing a different kind of work mm-hmm. uh, or different kind of uh, hobby, uh, it should be mm-hmm. encouraged because just as, mm-hmm. It's not just in Huntington's, but it's in pe- people in general. People getting encouragement to do things tend to do it <laughs> more often, right? Right. Than those who are not encouraged, right. of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, apathy is very hard to treat. The recommendations for Huntington's really are the same recommendations that you would see for apathy in other uh, diseases like Alzheimer's, uh, like Parkinson's. Uh, so it's not unique. Apathy is not unique to Huntington's. Other neurodegenerative diseases, also other uh, psychiatric diseases will have apathy associated with them as well. Depression, of course. Uh, demoralization, uh, which is when a person feels, uh, which is different than apathy, but it looks like it, feels like it. If you're helpless and you're hopeless, then why you're demoralized, so the feeling is, why bother? Mm-hmm. Why bother being active? Why bother helping yourself in what way you can? Because it, it's hopeless. It's helpless. I'm helpless. Mm-hmm. So being demoralized, you know, being told that things aren't treatable, so why, why bother seeing a doctor? Um, right. Mm-hmm. It's not apathy, uh, but it looks like it, feels like it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That makes total, yeah, that makes sense. So it, it's hard to tell what is what sometimes, uh, isn't it? Sure, yeah. But yeah. the treatment's the same. Do we have to dissect it? Uh, I don't think so. We need, incur- we need to encourage. We need to make sure that we're treating depression adequately. So it's, and, we, and to engage people, to prompt them and encourage them. So whatever we call it, uh, I, I think doesn't make too much difference. Okay, let's yeah. go on to um, um, psychosis. Uh, which is a severe symptom that uh, 
though it doesn't occur as frequently in the Huntington's population as other symptoms, uh, symptom complications of Huntington's. It's a severe symptom. You know, agitation mm-hmm. with aggression is one of the things that is feared by uh, Huntington's families, uh, and psychosis yeah. is as well. That person, yeah. uh, the person is no longer uh, acting in reality, uh, yeah. is mm-hmm. believing things that aren't true, uh, are seeing or hearing things that aren't there. That's scary very much so, and I use the word scary. I think that's reasonable for both the yeah. other families and people who love uh, the, the individual with Huntington's, but it's also scary for the person with Huntington's. Um, right. And uh, one of the things that Katie and I were discussing before this, uh, before the show is that, and also the experts said, even though it's not reported to be a common symptom in Huntington's and in our observational studies, like in role, psychosis is not common. Uh, it doesn't occur as frequently as the other symptoms and in the range of 10% or so. Uh, although it's in other studies, it may be more or less, depending on what kind of population is being studied. It's still less mm-hmm. frequently reported than other symptoms. Uh, many of the experts who were uh, working on this symptom thought that though, though that probably psychosis was underdiagnosed or underrecognized because individuals are often on antipsychotics for other symptoms. And so the psychotic symptom might be masked or partly covered up because it's being treated. Uh, even though you're using, you're using the drug uh, to treat another symptom like chorea uh, or like uh, more severe irritability. So maybe there's some psychosis there, but you're, it's under-recognized because it's being treated. Uh, the other thing is that psychosis in, in people, in individuals with advanced disease, um, you can't always be, sh- you don't know whether it's psychosis or not because they can't tell you what they're thinking or doing. They're agitated. They can be agitated, but you don't know why. Is it perhaps a psychotic, a scary psychotic symptom? We, there's no way of knowing. Uh, so there is belief that there's more psychosis than is actually diagnosed, you know, who knows? Uh, that really hasn't been shown in any clear way, although I, the, uh, uh, the experts believe it is a little more common than the 10% that was reported. Um, the treatment of psychosis in, in Huntington's is very similar to that uh, uh, in psychosis and other diseases. Uh, it's mm-hmm. different than in Parkinson's disease, however. Uh, the treatment of uh, psychosis in, in Huntington's and in Parkinson's or other diseases is, is first to try to, you know, calm the environment down, calm other symptoms down. Now, that doesn't make the psychosis go away necessarily, treat it directly, but the severity of it is better. If you can improve sleep, then psychosis, the severity of it is better. If you can improve uh, obsessive compulsive symptoms, you can, you often, there's less distress 
uh, and a less severe presentation of the symptom uh, if that other symptom is treated. Uh, and the goal often in treating psychosis in neurodegenerative disease is not to make it go away because it tends not to, but to decrease its severity mm-hmm. so it's not disturbing to the individual with Huntington's or, 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 or caretakers, uh, uh, carers of people with Huntington's. Um, an antipsychotic drug is the first line of treatment for psych- drug treatment for psychosis. Um, in, that differs a bit from, there's a lesser of a tendency to want to go to an antipsychotic in Parkinson's disease than there would be in Alzheimer's or in, um, uh, in, in Huntington's. Um, and this is the drug that we go to. This kind of drug or class of drug is the, what, the first-line treatment for psychosis. Uh, most of the experts preferred one of the newer drugs, uh, second generation we call them, as opposed to the older mm-hmm. Uh, first-generation antipsychotics, but there were still a significant number who, uh, of experts who would choose, uh, for instance, um, uh, Haldol for treating okay. psychosis, which is one of the older drugs, particularly if they thought that drug was needed or better for the chorea in that individual. So it's not that it's okay. been proved that one is better than the other. Uh, most of the experts preferred based on their experience or how they were taught, preferred the newer ones, but that doesn't mean the older ones can't be used. Um, Often, uh, the first drug may not work. And just like with antidepressants, the next course of action is to taper off that first one while you're adding a second one, a different one, to see Mm -hmm. if that might be better. Uh, And that would be the next uh, treatment to be used. There is a drug, and that was discussed uh, by the expert, called clozapine or clozaril, which is not to be used unless others have fa- at least two others have failed, um, and it has to be in a place where and it needs to be done in a situation where that individual can have blood testing, because it's a more, it has more dangerous side effects. This drug, uh, but it's on there for 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 mainly for physicians' use. This is not a drug that would be considered except in more severe situations where other drugs have not, not, been, uh, not treated the symptoms uh, successfully enough. Okay. One of the things also that they got into is that uh, as often ha- that can happen, particularly in long-term care facilities, is that uh, higher dosages or dosages that are higher than that recommended by the pharmaceutical company for the drug are used. And the experts said, uh, cautioned against that, believing that increasing the dose didn't help with the psychotic symptoms but may give more side effects. So Mm -hmm. higher than, you know, very high dosages that are over that that is recommended. There's usually a range of dosages that uh, you'll find recommended if you go to the web and look up that drug. It will say what the dosage range is. And uh, if that dosage is higher than the upper limit of the recommended one, then 
then that's too high is what our experts are saying, that you're not going to get any more benefit by going higher. Uh, they also discourage the use of more than one antipsychotic at a time. And often enough, or too often probably, um, in long-term care facilities, there can be the use of more than uh, one antipsychotic at a time to try to treat the more severe symptoms. Uh, and it's recommended that you know if you have the good luck to have a, a psychiatrist who knows a bit about HD consulted on that patient. Now, again, you not you don't say you absolutely can't do this because if if there are safety issues, uh, then it the, the choice may be even though there are more side effects to choose safety for uh, individuals and carers if two antipsychotics work better than one. So it's not that it should never be used. Guidelines are tools that you use generally, but there are situations where you have to do things differently than the guidelines would optimally suggest. So guidelines are tools. They're not, it's not the Bible. (laughs) It's not something you have to uh, religiously follow. Um, one of the other important things is if symptoms improve uh, after uh, a period of time which was not agreed upon, and it's really not agreed upon in the literature for other diseases either, is to, to can you taper, can you decrease dosage? So it is recommended, the experts recommended that there at least be a trial after symptoms have been controlled, person is no longer, and it's not distressing anymore for whatever period of time, and again, that was not, that was thought to be left to physician judgment, but that tapering mm-hmm. of the drug uh, to a lower level, and if symptoms do not recur, keep it at the lower level. If they recur, well, then you know that you have to stay at that other higher level. So that sure. was one of the recommendations also. Um, so that, in terms of... Uh, Psychosis, the you know the symptoms are. We've, we've usually, or I won't say usually, but I believe most frequently, the symptoms of psychosis in individuals with Huntington's will start will start uh, more mildly. You don't have a full blown uh, severe psychotic episode uh, mm-hmm. due to Huntington's mm-hmm. uh, that comes on very quickly it's something that kind of builds up there is a there's a disordered thinking that then becomes more pronounced and then becomes a delusion is often how the psychosis presents in Huntington's or it's been described as presenting and that's unlike you know a person with Huntington's can uh, develop an infection that's severe and have some psychosis but that's mm-hmm. not due to the Huntington's. That's due to uh, what would happen with an elderly individual with the same infection sometimes. And that's called delirium, which is different mm. than the psychosis of Huntington's. So you also have to make sure that that psychotic symptom that's presenting in an individual with HD isn't due to something else. And I meant right. I neglected to mention that in the beginning. Um, Anything that comes on very fast, 
in terms of a, a delusion uh, or uh, confusion and, and uh, a psychotic symptom is usually not due to Huntington's. It's usually due to something help ha- happening on top of Huntington's. Right, right. I thought something Any, really interesting that we were – oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Dr. No. Newman. No, 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 I'm finished. I, thought, I want you to interrupt with your thoughts. I, You're not interrupting. I, I, kind of, I, thought it was, I thought it was really interesting before we started the show how we were talking, and it made me actually think of a situation. There was a, a Huntington's family that um, the husband thought they had all these, this money off in all these different bank accounts, and um, he thought people were running these, this, this, this money, and, and it brought him comfort to think that he had all this money. And um, and all exactly. these different bank accounts and, and all over, and it was it was comforting to him, and the family would listen, and he. But soon those got turned in to he wanted that money, and right. he got angry because he wanted that money, and then now people are hiding that money from him, and his right. family's taking the money from him. So I thought it was really interesting because we talked to me and you. You kind of you talked about how. Sometimes psychosis, psychosis could be these plot, and then it'll turn. And that just made me think, um, well, as we were talking about, that I actually knew a situation about that. So is it important right. to treat psychosis even if it's comforting? Well, one needs to be at least aware. Again, you, you treat a symptom that is disturbing to the family or, uh, or, or the mm-hmm. individual, mm-hmm. Uh, do you sure. aggressively treat it? No. Or should you be aware mm-hmm. that it can turn into or evolve into uh, something that is more problematic? Yes. So you have to have a mm-hmm. low threshold for maybe in, in that situation. It depends on how often and how in communication with the family you are. Uh, if that patient is not, that person is not seen frequently and the family doesn't contact the physician or, or for or the, the medical provider for such problems or haven't been warned that it can increase, uh, if you, ideally, if you did not, if you had access and knew that the family would report anything quickly and also that you had warned the family that this might happen, then mm-hmm. I wouldn't treat it yet. Because you are, you're, it's it's pleasant. It's bringing comfort, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you have a side effect of a medication. And there's no evidence that it prevents uh, it's going on. I don't know. I don't know. That there isn't a good answer to that. I think some physicians, sure. you know, certainly in mm-hmm. schizophrenia where there is psychosis, earlier treatment before it's severe is better. Oh, okay. So, but is schizophrenia Huntington's? No. Uh, so I don't yeah. know the answer to that question. You can, you can make an argument for either mm-hmm. one. Right. Yeah. Usually, yeah, when psychosis often, comfort. Right. Often, uh, in, in, I had a patient who developed psych- pleasant psychotic symptoms. He was Jesus, and he was mm-hmm. helping people. Uh, mm-hmm. But he was already on an antipsychotic for other reasons. So did I increase the dosage or anything like that? No. Or change the antipsychotic? I didn't. It was pleasant. Mm-hmm. 
but it, but it, it became, then he was Jesus who was being crucified and he was suffering. Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, so then I increased the dosage. So it's, yeah. I think it's, has to be individualized. Um, I don't think there is a clear best answer because we just don't know it. Uh, and it's, it's really dependent on each patient, I think. And sometimes right. we get it wrong. <laughs> or, sometimes, or maybe we get it right. Who knows? There's probably not a right yeah. and wrong as long as one is being very observant of that patient and, and that the patient is accessible uh, and caretakers are warned that this may progress and, in fact, probably often does. Right. Hmm. I think so, uh, and this kind of segues into, I think, the obsessive-compulsive uh, behaviors, mm-hmm. uh, if I may, if, if, unless there's another question you or yes. a comment that no. you have about okay. psychosis. Okay. No, obsessive-compulsive behaviors, you know, can happen at any time in the course of Huntington's before motor onset. Uh, there's some evidence that it increases with stage of disease more than other symptoms do, and that it's more related to cognitive impairment, that it tracks with cognitive impairment also. So it's in a way like apathy. Uh, So disease progression, those two symptoms tend to track more with disease progression than the others, like anxiety or depression. the obsessive-compulsive behaviors and apathy tend to track with the disease core severity. Okay. Uh, with obsessive-compulsive behaviors, uh, and we call them behaviors. We don't call it OCD because individual, because people who have the disorder are aware that the behavior is not socially accepted. You know, they don't want everybody, they don't want people to see them washing their hands time and time again. Uh, they know that it's, this isn't socially acceptable, but it's something they have to do. Uh, that's the disorder. Um, the individual who has symptoms, uh, has this type of symptom in Huntington's disease is not aware that it's socially not acceptable, is not aware that it's, when I say socially not acceptable, that the behavior is a little bizarre. Now, the person with OCD, and this isn't black and white, there can be grays in OCD too, but uh, in general, in the disorder, the psychiatric disorder without Huntington's, the individual is aware that the behavior isn't appropriate and they would love to stop it, but they can't. Uh, as opposed to what happens with the behavior in in Huntington's is that they're, they're not aware that the behavior is inappropriate uh, and they keep doing it and doing it again, or thinking it, whether it's a thought or whether they are doing something that is, is repetitive. Uh, and it's re- re- repetitive things that really help define what the, uh, what, obsessive compulsive behaviors are as opposed to the disorder. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to remember those words, but uh, it's, there's a lack of awareness. It's not people with individuals with Huntington's are not willfully doing this. They are unaware that it's in, 
uh, inappropriate, it's due to the disease. They're not able to inhibit themselves. There's a need to do it uh, or to think it, uh, and they cannot inhibit that behavior. Uh, When it becomes severe, trying to interrupt that behavior uh, agitates individuals, makes them anxious. Sure. Yeah. I can imagine, yeah. 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 And I'm going to pull up. uh, The present guidelines uh, did not include the obsessive compulsive behaviors, but the earlier ones from 2011 did. Uh, I included these in the HDDW article because I think it's good to have them together uh, so you can compare one to the other and have them in one place. Um, the, I took the liberty of the published material from the obsessive compulsive uh, guideline and the irritability one, which was presented in a different way in the medical, in the journal, uh, but I put them in the same kind of format because I think that's easier for people to use. Uh, so you'll find that, that the uh, the one for obsessive compulsive behaviors I put uh, put similarly to uh, what we did with the other recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, the cha- thoughts that get stuck go round and round. Uh, being upset when routines change uh, or inflexibility. You know, they you're used. You want to have repetitive things. You want routines. You know, what is a routine? It's really a repetitive, comfortable behavior. And we all like our routines, but they can become more uh, seriously engraved uh, in in individuals with Huntington's. So interrupting the routine is very hard on can cause agitation uh, in individuals with Huntington's. So one of the treatments yeah. is to try to not have that happen. You do, do the best you can to let people stick with routines, and if it has to be changed, as sometimes it does, then give pre-warning so the individual can be, uh, can help, everybody can help prepare for it a little bit. Um, yeah. This, this uh, symptom's not, again, not unique to HD. It happens in Alzheimer's. It happens in Parkinson's. It happens in uh, in diseases of cognitive impairment. Um, it is one of the. It's very highly distressing for that individual with honey who has this has this symptom, and it's very distressing for for carers who cannot interrupt this behavior, and it becomes very very hard to deal with without agitating that individual. Uh, yeah. Also, the, tr- the treatment for these behaviors is not unlike the treatment in other, it's not unlike the treatment in the true disorder. Uh, people without, you know, people who are aware of the symptom, the treatments, the sa- recommendations for drug treatments are the same. Um, it's not different, uh, not significantly different than uh, in when this symptom happens in other uh, disease states. Um, The drug recommendations are uh, the first drug of choice is an SSRI, uh, like Zoloft or or, uh, Celexa, one of those types of drugs. Um, 
And again, like in depression, if the first one doesn't work, you you try a second. Uh, one of the things to remember about uh, treating uh, drug treatment uh, is with uh, for this behavior is one needs to be realistic. The drugs are not going to take it all away. What you're trying to do is to decrease the severity of that symptom. Uh, so it's not as distressing for uh, carers and for the individuals with Huntington's. A higher dose is often needed for this symptom. Uh, a higher dose of an SSRI is often needed for this symptom than that used for treating depression or anxiety. And it also takes longer to have an effect. So if you, you know, use or given an SSRI and in two weeks nothing has happened, well, expect that nothing will happen because that's the usual course. You have to stick with it and then increase dosage. Usually uh, higher dosages are needed to control the more severe symptoms. Uh, to keep that in mind, uh, your your general physician may not know that. You know, this isn't something that a general physician treats very often. And if the only care medical providers you have access to easily are your your general medical providers, then providing that information to that individual, I think, would be helpful for both the person with HD, and I think it's helpful also for the physician. Uh, do you need to bring you know, bring this up with your Huntington specialist? No, uh, I don't think so. Uh, but it's most most individuals with Huntington's don't have access or or regular access to uh, HD experts. So it's useful to know these things so you can let your doctor know about them. Uh, the other drug that is used both in the O the, the OCD or the disorder uh, or something called delusional disorder, which is, uh, is, is this drug called clomipramine or anaphronil. And the psychiatrists who treat this symptom in Huntington's uh, use this drug, uh, use this drug. Now, it's an old drug. Um, it is one that has both SSRI uh, activity, but it also has what's called a, the tricyclic activity, like the older drugs that were used, Elevil or amitriptyline, those kinds of drugs. If you recall, if you remember those, that kind of drug. So this is a drug that has more than one action. Uh, it appears to, at least in the hands of psychiatrists, they believe that this drug is helpful for the severe perseverative behaviors. This isn't the drug that you start with because it has more side effects. But if mm -hmm. the SSRI is not controlling symptoms adequately, then considering that drug, the physician should, should think about it at least uh, or maybe give it, give it a try. One needs to remember, though, that if you're on a high-dose SSRI and you add clomipramine, then you're really you're adding more SSRI. So there can be side effects from that. So the experts recommend that you you bring that dosage down, or even de or even discontinue 
the SSRI if you're using clomipramine because you're double dosing with the mm-hmm. same kind mm-hmm. of drug. Uh, so care, do, uh, do the, if, if one is thinking, one needs probably to have a psychiatrist who knows something about HD and these drugs before you would use them together. Uh, the, the doctor. Uh, now, antipsychotics are not the treatment of choice for this be, kind of behavior, the obsessive compulsive one, but uh, if there's agitation associated with it, then an antipsychotic would probably be, be indicated. And as the disease progresses, uh, the symptom can become more distressing and cause agitation and safety issues, in fact. And then an antipsychotic is used to treat that part of it, the agitation safety part of it, if that behavior is causing the agitation. Does that make sense? You don't go, yep. you don't go yep. to an antipsychotic first. You, what, you're not really treating the preservative symptom. You're treating the agitation that can go along with it. Sure. And you don't okay. stop treating yeah. the, the, the usual treatment, the SSRI or clomipramine treatment for, for the disorder. Um, yeah. Again, the... Uh, uh, with any symptom with Huntington's, uh, we have to realize when we talk about treatment or managing it, you're not going to make all of that go away. It's the same thing if you think of, you know, when, you, when we say that your, the depression can be treated with a drug, well, whether that's in an individual with Huntington's or not, we know that that doesn't take all depressive symptoms away or sadness. It helps sure, with it. Yeah. It makes it less mm-hmm. distressing. It's not a cure of depression. You know, right. these drugs are not cure drugs. They don't take care of all of it. They help manage the symptom to be less distressing. And that's what we, we call a treatment. Now, is it a yeah. disease-modifying treatment? Is it going to stop the disease? No. It's going to improve, though, quality of life. Yeah. Uh, increase safety, uh, and make it less stressful, also distressing for, individ- for, for families. It doesn't take care of all of it. It doesn't prevent it from getting worse over time. Uh, and uh, needing to add things or more difficulty dealing with these symptoms, but keep. I think that there is, uh, don't stop. Uh, trying to get help for these symptoms because often a certain various combinations might might be helpful. Uh, so we, right. one should not stop trying and saying that it's hopeless. Uh, even a very yeah. end stage disease, hospice disease, comfort. Uh, you know, when we talk about comfort, uh, what is comfort? It's treating a symptom that is that is uncomfortable, whether you're in early disease yeah. or whether you're in later disease. Uh, so that's yep. the kind of treatment we're talking about, uh, but it's still very, very important treatment, even though it's not curative, right? Um, right. We we hope that in the future we don't need these drugs, and that we can, can instead have a new drug that uh, prevents the disease or, or or makes it better, and we won't need these right. symptoms treated. That would be great. 
but until then, uh, knowing more about these symptoms and uh, getting, trying to get more help is, of course, all useful for everyone. It's hard to do sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. But, absolutely. Yeah. And every single symptom that you talked about, Dr. Goodman, of these last three shows are uncomfortable. You know, they're not. Yes. If there's treatment options out there then we should be getting our loved ones help and help for our families as a whole. Like you were saying, you, you kept saying, you know, helping the families. It's a, it's a family journey. And um, I think that and, and one thing I, that Dr. Having you, yeah. Ha- having you said yeah. that <laughs> reminds me that Huntington's families have anxiety and depression that often need, mm-hmm. would benefit from treatment. Yeah. Uh, and care partners, carers, families tend not to seek that for themselves. Maybe they were too tired. Uh, uh, we think that we can handle this, that we can take care of it mm-hmm. ourselves. And uh, because this is so chronic and ongoing and tiring and burning us out, families out, then uh, going to... My, my my best advice is to go to a drug earlier as opposed to later um, yeah. for treatment, whether it's counseling, uh, uh, whether it is uh, dealing with the symptoms in a behavioral, cognitive sort of way, uh, or with a drug. It's important for family members, too, for their own quality of life outside of taking care of uh, an individual with Huntington's. Thank you right. for bringing that up. I would have not said it probably otherwise. Yeah, I think that I think we've had um, lately we've had caregivers um, uh, that have taken their own life and uh, commit uh, committed suicide. We've seen that more frequently lately. I'm sure it's happened a lot, but we're hearing about it a lot lately. So I think that um, you know, and that's a whole other show, right? Caregiver taking care of a caregiver. But one thing, so Dr. Goodman, treat depression to prevent. You, know, you can't prevent suicide sometimes, but that. The, the recent suicide study in Enroll says that if you, you that depression is there, depression is one mm-hmm. is what happens before suicide, or is associated with suicide, uh, correlates right. with it. So treating and and that's so in the general population, treat the depression to lessen the you know, decrease the frequency of suicide, whether it's in the individual with Huntington's or the family. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that Dr. Goodman kept saying through these last three shows is like the general public. So, you know, a lot of these treatments, a lot of these things are are very, you know, they're available. It's not Huntington specific treatment. It's treating depression. It's treating agitation. Um, So even, you know, this would be treated the same way. Um, Kind of across the board. Did I say that right, Dr. Goodman? Yep. It's, a little more complicated when there are multiple symptoms, so that's sure. what makes it a little, yeah. that makes it a little harder, uh, yeah. uh, and in some patients a lot harder. But um, in general, it's the same drugs that would be used in the general population for these symptoms, the same treatments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, um, I think that I am so thankful to all these these experts that came together and made these guidelines. Uh, Huntington's, uh, just because you're diagnosed with Huntington's doesn't mean that if there are symptoms that you need help with quality of life and treatment that we don't treat them, that we don't see doctors. That's absurd. And now today in the age of medicine, we should be going to doctors 
uh, with our loved ones and talking to them about depression, talking to them about anxiety. If there's anything we can do to help relieve these this from our loved ones and our families, we should be actively trying to get them the best care as possible. Um, Now we have these guidelines that we can take with us. Dr. Goodman's website is fantastic. It brings it down to, uh, she takes very hard language and (laughs) makes it so we understand it. Um, So definitely always visit HD Drug Works um, to read these articles and to look at these guidelines. And then she's linked these guidelines that you can bring to your physicians. Um, These are uh, HD is not something that we don't go see doctors because there's nothing available because there are things available and there are things that care teams can help us with navigating our journey. So um, make sure that uh, I think that we often too often say there's nothing anyone can do for us. And there's actually things that, that care providers can do and the HD experts know that because they've been doing it for patients for a long time. Um, so, yeah. So before we wrap up, Dr. Goodman, do we have any final thoughts? Nope. You said it all very well. Th- thank you for having me on. Thank, thank you for, uh, for, for giving us your time for the last three weeks. It was very important. And, uh, and if we have any questions, if you guys have any questions at all, you can always um, submit them to me. I can get them to Dr. Goodman, but definitely HD Drug Works, www.hddrugworks.org. Um, is the place to find all these articles and um, and different resources uh, for these topics along with a lot. There's a lot of information uh, that's great on that website. Tune in next week. We actually are going to talk about um, with Dr. Hefty uh, from University of Iowa who actually um, just, they just were able to get funding to start a um, brain uh, donation bank there at the University of Iowa. Um, and then we are going to talk about uh, as well this year, uh, this month we have a pharmacist coming on that's going to talk about medications um, available in Huntington's. He just actually published a paper. He's actually out of the University of Iowa as well, um, and Dr. Schultz, and he just published an amazing paper and uh, spoke at our symposium, so we are excited to have him on the show. So you guys, it was a great talk, so I hope that he does the same uh, in two weeks on the show, which I'm sure he will. So uh, until next week, everyone have a safe week, and we will talk to you next Wednesday, same time, same place. Thank you, Dr. Goodman.